Hello, you're listening to the Art Grind Podcast, coming to you from a black track suit in Manhattan's Upper East Side. I'm your host, Marshall Jones. I'm Kim Power. This is Tony Soprano. <laughs> Today, we had a rare daytime interview that was espresso-filled with the incredibly interesting Mark Dennis. We talked about his rough-and-tumble past. Ton wondered if he could take him in a fight. I can. <laughs> we also got into his drive. We talked to Mark about his desire to record what he was seeing as a child all the way to present day where he is a VIP at the Armory. So put on your tracksuit, grab an espresso as Mark shares some stories and drops some knowledge from his life. We rolling? We rolling. Hey, Mark, welcome to our Grind Podcast. Thanks for coming by today. Thanks welcome, Mark. Me. Thank you very welcome. much. So we're talking to Mark Dennis here, and he is a, an incredible hyper-realistic painter. Hyper-realistic is the right word, right? It's like incredibly detailed, vivid colors, almost... Almost super realistic, I would say. Like you want to touch them, su- yeah. like you want to put I a cape wanna, on. I want to pick those flowers right <laughs> off of the canvas. Super real. It's amazing. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. Yeah, it's beautiful and enticing, and it lures me in every time I, I see your work. So um, we are thrilled to have you here. You have an incredible resume, which I can't even like sum it all up. I'd like to say that. You've had 10 solo exhibitions, that's correct? It's what's on your resume, it's kind of amazing. 10 big solo yeah, exhibitions. Yeah, about that. Uh, Casterline Goodman Gallery, Herschel and Adler Modern. What's the most important one for you that you felt like was the most successful in those solo shows? Hasted Kreitler, 2014, before they closed on 24th Street in Chelsea. Okay. Show sold out in about two weeks. Really? Wow. Yeah, developed uh, quite a list after that, like a wait list, I guess. Wow. That's fantastic. How, how many paintings were in that show? 16. Ooh. Right. Sold out in two weeks, 16 paintings? Yeah. Did Damn. you get the word out for that? Or Hashtag did blessed, you know. That? <laughs> Hashtag blessed. That's all I can yeah. say, man. I don't know. Sometimes there's luck, there's skill, there's craft, there's timing. Uh-huh. Uh, all is a combination of all those things, yeah. right? Yeah, they were aligned for me, and it worked. And, uh, and you've got an incredible array of, of group exhibitions. You've, you've shown in South Korea... L.A., New York, Texas, Seattle. I think it's like pretty much all over the place, right? Wait, I have a question, though, because you said everything lined up at that moment. Like, do you feel that was a result of a lot of hard work on the back end? Do you feel it's a result of timing? Do you feel what, – what do you attribute that to? So I have this quote on my studio wall by uh, Louis Pasteur that reads, chance favors the prepared mind. Uh-huh. And I always looked at that like, you know, if you do the right things, you are motivated, you are productive, good things will come your way, but not merely by virtue of working hard. But when that door opens, when opportunity does knock, you're ready. And you're prepared. So all that hard work and all that motivation, that's preparation. So uh-huh. I was prepared. And when that show came to me, and those works went up on the wall, I had at that point established many good and solid relationships mm-hmm. with buyers, collectors of sorts, uh, writers and art advisors. I've never burned a bridge. I've always been nice. And these are the things that I relate to my students. Be prepared. Don't burn bridges. Mm-hmm. And play nice. So, yeah, the stars were aligned because 
I put myself in a position for when opportunity did indeed knock, I was ready to make the, be- to make the most of it. Hmm. But you also had the work, too. I brought, I brought it, I guess you, you could say, which, you know, a lot of, you know, most artists, anybody who works hard in any industry, just it's a lot of effort. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of isolation. I try to put in eight hours a day. I mean, there are times I go 14 hours, sometimes 11. I mean, I, I don't think I'd do any more all-nighters, but I came close, you know, about a week ago. Prior to Armory Week, I think I was going on the 16th hour and realized I got to eat something. Hmm. Yeah, wow. you got to, like, remind yourself, maybe put a timer on and say, hey, food has to happen. <laughs> I should have a timer. I guess the <laughs> iPhone's got one somewhere. I don't know. I never know. Everything. Wash the cadmium off your I never use it. I trust, my, <laughs> I trust my gut. But, so uh, what what gave you that like that sense of work ethic? Did you learn that from your parents growing up, or? That's a good question. I mean, it's good because that should be asked by everybody in the world. But my father and mom, they were hard workers. My brothers worked hard. My dad, growing up, was a businessman. Okay. And, uh, where did you grow up? Well, born in the north shore of Massachusetts in a town called Danvers. Grew up in Sharon, Mass, uh, Newtonville, Framingham. Okay. Uh, upstate New York in a little town called Gilderland for a year or two. And then um, most of the time in uh, Puerto Rico. We grew up in Puerto Rico because my, okay. my dad was born in Havana. Oh, wow. So he's a Cuban Jew, otherwise known as a Juban. <laughs> and my mother, so he's like Ricky Ricardo. And my oh. mother is like Lucy. She was Ricky. born and raised in... So she was born in Somerville, Mass. Oh, really? Okay. Wicked Pissa, shout out. And <laughs> then Pissa. she grew up in Roxbury. Okay. Which is a rough part of town. So she was like a real tough Jewish girl growing up. And then met my father. Malcolm when he X escaped, grew up in Roxbury. When he escaped Cuba. Got the hell out of that Castro bullshit. And okay. then um, met my mom and uh, they had five sons. So wow. we, they, we moved around a lot. But when we went to Puerto Rico, it was because my father was because he can speak fluent Spanish, was given this opportunity to start a new, a new branch of offices okay. for a combined insurance company. Was this in uh, Old San Juan or New San Juan? So we lived in Guaynabo. Guaynabo. Why? Por Tu conoces la isla? Boricua. Hey, Mark. Okay, so... Um, so, I, yeah, I grew up in, in Puerto Rico. We had a swimming pool... And it was really there that I began to examine my surroundings. And that's when I discovered that detail mattered. We had lizards in the backyard. We had hibiscus plants, orchids, mm. all kinds so it's of the colors. It was everything about the fact that I had to walk up close to something and really examine it if I had to understand it. Because most lizards run away real quickly. Okay. So if I could creep up. And I tell you, it's the same ethic I brought to my work, to my paintings. Okay. I was very careful about observing my surroundings. And when I make a painting... I look very closely at my subject matter and make sure that I get it the way that I think it needs to be uh, represented. What do you mean in terms of composition or in terms of painting itself? Like the, subject matter, the technical? De- yeah, ahead. the details. So if I, back in the day, were like nine and I wanted to draw a lizard like an iguana that was hanging on our wall mm-hmm. in our backyard, and, you know, they bask, so sometimes they're not moving Right. For 20 That's minutes. Right, yeah. uh-huh. So if I had just the right set of binoculars. Still life. And a distance, yeah. Like the perfect still life, in fact. Perfect models of lizards. Huh. So uh, I would draw them. And I was realizing, wow, you know, I'm drawing from observation. This is a really unique thing to me. I didn't get that in Boston. I was always drawing comic book heroes and lots of Batman. Okay. And, 
you know, even Archie. But when I got to Puerto Rico and I realized that, you know, my mother would say to us five sons, get outside, get out of the house, go play. I would sometimes sit in the backyard and draw, you know, I'd be by the edge of the pool. But what mattered to me most was the fact that I could capture detail. Like I could capture a really good likeness of something if I took the time and looked long enough. And I do that today. So that takes, that requires hours. And that work ethic, I think, just stemmed from the fact that my dad would work really hard. He'd get up, he'd get dressed, he'd go to work, he'd come home. There was always dinner on the table. My mother always made sure we were healthy and happy and clothed. Mm-hmm. It was really, you know, it was a good, it was a really good childhood. Ah, oh, that's beautiful. So you, I'm getting the picture of kind of going back and forth from Boston, cold weather to Puerto Rico, sun, right? There was a lot of, there was a lot of traveling in our lives. We moved probably, I think, prior to graduating high school, I think 17 times. Wow. 17? Yeah, Yeah, I think, I think there were four different high schools. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then there were, uh, let me get, let me count this one. Yeah. Four high schools. There was, uh, yeah, we moved almost every other year. So when did you know you wanted to be an artist in that? Okay. There's the, uh, what do they say, the million-dollar question? <laughs> the, the epiphany moment. This is the epiphany the moment my life as well. This is, a, this yeah. is beyond Eureka. This is like, take the handcuffs off. I'm going back to high school, not a juvenile detention center. So when I was 15 and a half, okay. I was a pretty, uh, pretty good kid. Uh-huh. I was good grades. This is in Boston. I wasn't again. great in math, but this was uh, now we had lived uh, in New Jersey for, okay. for a year. Okay. okay. And I had, um, I guess my rowdy hormones took over. Rough and tumble, right? Rough and tumble. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, like some people don't believe these stories. So I, you know, I had at that point had gotten into two knife fights. I had stabbed Whoa. two wow. people. Yeah. Whoa. Was this Newark? Like, what, what, no, I'm not, I can't name, I'm not going to name the town. For my, uh, <laughs> it's going to incriminate half the people who live there. <laughs> but I, I was in a lot of fight. We fought quite a bit. I was also the new kid. So a lot of kids walked up to me thinking they were the tough guys, you know. Oh, that's and prison yard. You got to take so down yeah. the biggest one. Yeah, I think all little boys, I think, I guess, you know, go through this. I, I'm not sure if girls actually do because I never had a sister. It's all been boys, but we all went through it. But we could all handle ourselves. I mean, it started in seventh grade. I, I should really back backpedal after this. But anyway, the eureka moment in terms of wanting to be an artist was when I was arrested. Okay. For grand larceny. Wow. At okay. At the age of 15. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we're talking major grand larceny. It wasn't like, you know, it was like stealing two cars. It was breaking and robbing homes and stores and hotels. I mean, I, I don't want to go too deep into this, uh-huh. but... but but I had to go to court. Like, I was told that I was going to go to a juvie hall, like a, a juvenile detention center as a 15-and-a-half-year-old. And that was going to, how I was going to play out the rest of my high school years. And I'm thinking, I didn't really grasp it yet. You know, I thought, well, somebody's joking. This can't be real. Because mm-hmm. I'm a good kid, because I was actually on the yearbook committee, if you can believe that. And kids <laughs> on the yearbook committee didn't look like me. I had really long hair. I wore, you know, my Timberlands. I had my black mm-hmm. jeans, a black T-shirt. I didn't smoke or anything, but... I was definitely a good fighter. I was not the kid you'd think you'd see in the yearbook committee after school having meetings about content. Yeah. But I was that kid. I went because but I could draw really well. And I was drawing all the portraits of kids and teachers to put in oh, you were? the pages of the yearbook. Yeah, so simultaneously, so you had like yeah. these two compartmentalized so, parts of your life. Dualities are my middle name. So were you like a kind of... I, I swear okay. that is a great... 
listen, we're going to get there because I'm all about polarities and I, and I believe in the power of polarities and this whole, maybe not the yin-yang thing, but I certainly I believe in the extremes. You know, all, there's all highs and lows in our lives and they both can be very powerful if you just let them take over. As learning tools? As learning tools, as living tools, energizing mm-hmm. components. So anyway, I was arrested. I was told... In the holding cell, the night I was busted and cuffed. 15 they, years old. 15, New yeah, Jersey. 15, four months. And they said to me, you're going to be sent away, kid. Nobody likes you. <laughs> and you cause a lot of grief, uh, a lot of destruction. And uh, you got, you ha- you'll have your day in court. So I went to school. And I remember I had to go see the guidance counselor. And most guidance counselors, I don't even know if they still have them in high schools, but they, you know, I hate to say it, but they were not very useful unless you really, you know, I'm not, she was useless. Okay. All right. For me, for me, you know, God bless her for helping other kids. But I had, you know, my attention, I don't know, nowadays they have all kinds of diagnoses for attention deficit disorders, but, you know, mine might have been, because my initials are MD, mine could have been AD, HD, MD, I don't know what, but I wasn't (laughs) listening to her, but she did sit me down after this arrest, and I was learning to pay attention, and she said, listen, Mark, you're going to be one of two things after you graduate. You're either going to be a criminal, Uh or you're going to be a cop, because you're going to realize good versus evil, and you're going to realize which one is is the right one. Okay. And I was like, a cop or a criminal? <laughs> I said, you know, I'm not, that's so what, like that, a score that, those are my movie. choices. That's kind of a, you know, I put my hands up and here I am like this, you know, like it was a typical long-haired punk teenage oy vey moment. And I, and she said, however, it has been brought to my attention that you're on the yearbook committee. Oh, okay. And I said, yeah. And she says, and it seems that you can draw really well. You have a really good talent. Okay, well, she did notice something. That's wow. For drawing. I said, who, who, how do you know that? And she says, well, Mark, we're, I'm an administrator, and, you know, we share thoughts, and you're a kid in, in distress here and in trouble, and, you know, I'm here to kind of guide you. And I was like, okay, right, you're going to guide me. So I said, well, what have you heard? She says, well, all I can tell you <laughs> is that you're pretty good, and maybe you should focus on that. Huh. And I said, all right, thanks. And I left, and then my huh. court date was in two days, and I sat in my bedroom, Oddly, my dad worked hard enough to give us each our own room. And I was sitting in my room on the edge of my bed. And I was listening, I believe, ACDC. Nice. Like, how do you Hell's not, bells. Right? Hell's bells, sure. baby. That's, you know. So I'm thinking, <laughs> wow, what am I going to say in court? I'm going to get 20 minutes, I was told. Anyway, when I got to court. So you got 20. That's a weird situation. So I had to talk to a, to a panel of my parents' peers. Wow. As well as administrators from the school. Because you were, because you were fifteen, and is that how it works? And in? the arresting cop, because yeah. So I aspired to be an artist, and how what mattered to me most was reinventing anime and putting America in front of the Japanese industry. And I was not even a big anime fan. I wasn't even really into japanese comics or anything but i remember reading about it the night before uh-huh by looking at all the books on my shelf like I, you know i actually re- i read i was a good kid i'm telling you it was really interesting that i had this incredible as, as uh you know you put it earlier rough and tumble side but you know i have a lot of energy and i there's times i need to get it out so at two in the morning i would go outside and raise hell and then come back before sunrise and no one would know i was kind of like batman i liked it that way uh, nocturnal urges i was i had nocturnal urges <laughs> and uh they were mostly the, destructive so the dark menace 
Yeah, the dark menace. There you go. Oh, I love that you. I it's, love it's, this it's interview. Jekyll and Hyde. It's well, like your Mark Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll and Hyde tackles a different sensibility. Batman Carvaggio. But seriously, yeah, same, Batman same, Carvaggio. I'll go with that. Same guy. Mark Dennis, dark menace, polarities. Your book committee beating up people at the middle of the night. But no one. I never fought anyone unless they picked on me first. But I never backed down. Anyway, so. I'm in court, and I'm talking about my art, and I'm talking about my aspirations and hopes. Uh-huh. And I, I saw the judge's jaw drop. She goes, wait, are you the same kid that did these crimes? And you're, this, you're talking about this now? She goes, you seem to be very focused to me. You seem to have your, your head on properly. Huh. Anyway, what the heck she happened? Says, whatever, <laughs> whatever, I was told I would be uh, informed as to my outcome, as to mm. the outcome of this so-called presentation, uh-huh. this court hearing. Uh, 30 minutes after I spoke, so the judge uh, came to me and my mother, who was with me at the time, and she said, uh, you're going to finish out your years back in high school. Wow. I'm very impressed with what you said. No one's come in here and spoken nonstop for 20 minutes about their aspirations. Wow. That's some good Good luck to you, young man, right? Uh, Of the gab. (laughs) But it it sounds like you, you were given a legitimate second chance like there was something about you in that meeting people took attention to and gave you you threw yourself to the mercy of the court and they gave you they showed you mercy has that has that been a defining thing for you in your life to to rely on that yeah that was the epiphany yeah you had asked about an epiphany moment or epiphany Mm -hmm. and that was indeed it i knew right then and there i was never going to go bad i was never i knew that i was in the right path because i realized one thing that I was appreciated for my skill. Huh. I thought, my God, who, who can any given day say they're appreciated for something that they take so much pride and love in? That's here a I am, a, changer. Here I am. Uh-huh. A, I make drawings. And I was appreciated for this skill. Uh-huh. So fast forward about a month. Hey, man, I heard you got off. You know, Welcome back to high school, all that stuff. Can, uh, can I pay you to do a drawing on my girlfriend for a Christmas gift? I must have gotten 70 orders what? For drawings, for using uh, a little rapidograph ink pen on seashells, drawing things on seashells, pictures of rock stars. People. Really? Yeah, and I must have made probably five grand. Really? In wow. about two months. So the, <laughs> the universe heard you. The universe yeah. heard me. See, this is like, you know. The pen is mightier than the sword, Mark. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. See? That's... Just keep talking amongst yourselves because you're... You're saying everything that matters. This is, you're absolutely right. The pen is muddy in the sword in this sense. The universe heard me. The stars were aligned. And I got damn lucky. If you build it, they will come. That's yeah. All right, there you go. Done. Like you put it out there and said, this is, this is my new paradigm. And it you made, But you also yeah. made it happen. Because those people asked you, and you said yes. Like you declared your intentions to the universe. The universe gave back to you, and you said, okay, I'm going to follow up on that. Yeah, it's true. That's, that's, I think, so important, because all those people could have said, oh, can you do this? And you could have said, yeah, that thing that I decided that I was going to do, that just got me off of a lot of trouble, and I'm just going to have fun sketching on my own. Like, you already had a business sense way back then. I did indeed. I don't know where it came from. Maybe uh, I was paying attention. Uh, <laughs> so what did you end up doing with the five grand? Uh, well, <laughs> Do you remember? No, I, I put most of it away, and I paid for rent 
on a beach house uh, for the summer. Nice. In New Jersey? Yeah, to live near a girl I liked. Really? Oh, awesome. Yeah, at 16. Oh, at 16. <laughs> yeah, and then I... Um, that is pimp. If I was that yeah. cool at 16. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because I just realized yeah. something saying oh, that. Heart, I just realized something. I'm beach house and see my sketches. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's funny. I said I never went bad again, and I just realized something I did during that summer. Yeah. <laughs> wow. uh, the dark menace reemerged. But it, yeah. yeah, a little bit, now that I think about it. See? So what happened? Can't you can't no, I'm not going to go there right can't now. Can't keep a bad boy down. Part two. Part, part two? two. <laughs> so I'll come back and give you part two. However, I did want to rewind and mention something about my having gotten into trouble. So before even I got arrested for all that stuff, I had done things as a little kid. You know, like I explored. Okay. And then second grade, second grade, I lit the woods on fire. What? Wow. Yeah, by accident. It was in Gilderland, New York. I had gone into the... I had asked my mom and dad for a magnifying glass because I wanted to learn more about details. I wanted to get as close uh, as possible to something before uh-huh. I could start drawing it. So back... So you're talking about epiphanous moments. You know, the, the, that was an epiphany granted in court because, you know, I had, to, I had to realize that making art, in fact, was a viable means of making a living. Like, I, didn't, I never knew that. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But I learned it, you know, at 15 and a half. Five grand so, later... Yeah, it was kind of interesting. So, uh-huh. I mean, uh, but, but I remember thinking back, another moment that was an epiphany to me as a little kid, realizing that what mattered to me was getting close up to things, which is why I'm so detailed now. This is all, this is all stemming from what you said before about super real and hyper real. And, yeah. uh-huh. you know, I think my paintings mimic my energy. So I'm very excitable and I'm very energized. And I got this, micro, this, micro, this uh, magnifying glass, rather, and I went into the woods. And I was looking at ants close up. I would huh. corner them. I'd smash them so they couldn't walk. And I'd look at them close up. Though. It was a little, you know, all kids do that. I think. Hey, so, I, yeah. hey, Peter, I did terrible things to bugs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, then I started eating them later in life. That's right. But I, but I remember that. putting the magnifying glass on an ant and looking at it closely and thinking, wow, you know, this is wild. But I noticed it started twitching and getting all hot. And oh, thinking, oh, yeah. my God, this magnifying glass has a power that uh-huh. I was unaware of. Oh, like your power. You discovered fire. So this boy, yeah, I'm like, you know. Man discovers fire. I'm like uh, pre-Neanderthal. I'm like one of the first hominids here in my neighborhood. I'm like, you know, the MD. I'm like the dark menace hominid. I'm holding the magnifying glass, and I'm realizing I can start burning holes in leaves. Oh, man. By virtue of the positioning with the sun's rays. You all know this. And we've I all do. done it. Yeah, of course. Well, so I... did it as an art lesson. So. My exuberance got the best of me. <laughs> and I didn't realize it was sort of like uh, where summer transitions into fall. Oh. There's a lot of leaves around. And really? Just it went off. up. We're talking three alarms, fire engines, a hook and ladder truck, two water trucks. Oh, my God. They all came, an emergency vehicle. They all came flying up into our yard. They all came piling in. Anyway, I ran like the Dickens out of the wood. I ran. It was smoke. The whole backyard, the whole, it was like I must have burned, I'd say maybe, you know, like four, three acres. I mean, we're talking Uh like a big swath of forest behind our house. Ran upstairs under the bed. Thought, this is cool. They won't find me here. Anyway, I heard clomping <laughs> up the steps. Well, hours later. Dad or mom? My mother knew I was upstairs. My dad knew I was upstairs. Although I think my dad may have been working. I don't remember exactly. But I knew my mother was home. Because uh-huh. I ran into the house and said, call the police. And I ran upstairs. And she looked at the backyard and realized, oh, my God. What did, 
She's burning so everything she called, down. made a quick phone call. Then I was up in my room, and she started saying, what's going on? What happened? I said, I, I magnifying glass. I lit the woods on fire. I didn't mean to do it. It was an accident. She goes, okay. Ran back downstairs. The fire trucks were pulling up. She wanted to make sure she was there. It's her property. Anyway, about two hours later, maybe, I just heard clomping up the steps. Like, you uh-huh. know, boom, 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 boom. And I knew, oh, my God, that's some muddy boots. So we were forbidden to wear our shoes if they were muddy or whatever in the house. And I knew that if she's allowing a firefighter up the stairs with the boots on, I'm in trouble. Yeah. Because wow. this is big permission. This mm. is like yeah, Moses part in the sea there, you know. So the guy walked upstairs. He says, Mark, your mother told me you're up here. You can come out. We know what happened. We want to ask. I just want to ask you a few questions. But most importantly, I want to tell you a little story. I'm looking out, and there's the boots. We're talking like a lot of crap. A lot of, I mean, I'm thinking, this is serious. So I got out, and I just looked up at him. And, you know, firefighters have this presence, you know. I was yeah. very uh-huh. in awe of him. Because sure. he he's, like, he's like um, a superhero. He's it's all like a moon landing to me. Th- like, a moon you know, landing, absolutely. He's, he's there. I mean, because you never see him. Uh-huh. You all see the fire engines go by, and every little kid's like, whoa, there's a fire engine, you know. And then we realize... There's actual humans that fight these fires. And here he uh-huh. is on the edge of the bed. And he's like, listen. Muddy boots. How did it start? And I told him, you know, it was a magnifying glass. And I got the leaves going. And I'm sorry. I really am sorry. Am I in big trouble with anyone else but my, my mother and father? <laughs> and he said, well, yeah, you're in trouble with the animals. Oh, oh my God. Because I was an animal lover. All I did was draw animals. Uh-huh. All I did. That's all I wanted to do was get close to... I used to want to visit taxidermy studios to look at... I just wanted to draw animals. Yeah. Uh-huh. Chipmunks, mainly. And squirrels. Uh, snakes. Everything. And lizards. That's what led me to... So, I said, what do you mean, the animals? They know I did it? How, how do they know? I mean, they don't have... <laughs> he says, no. You know, you know how they know, Mark? Because you pushed them out of their homes. It's like Bambi. They're all running yeah. away from the God. fire. Yeah, I never saw Bambi. And then he says... <laughs> he, and then I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, you know, and you may have killed a few. Oh, wow. Jesus. I freaked out. God. I was like, you think? He says, yeah, I, I definitely think. Oof. So don't ever light a fire in the woods again. I guess that sunk in, right? Yeah, so that was a very big epiphany. It was a very big epiphany for me. I'm so careful now with fires. But it was I'm your s- curiosity. That's a hard lesson learned because... It's a good lesson. Yeah, but if you were lighting matches and throwing them, that's a very different lesson than playing with a magnifying glass outside and things get out of control, you know? I guess it's a perception, but yeah. I took it to heart, and I love animals. And listen, I've been lucky, I think, in my life in many instances. And I will say one thing about that lesson in high school when in court I got off. I do count my lucky stars. I mm-hmm. do believe that I got a second chance, as you say. Uh huh. And I do give back today. I am very generous, I feel, with my time, with my students. Uh-huh. So, so you had this moment where you switched over and all these people were asking you to do portraits and, yeah. and other kind of artwork. Blew my mind, to be honest with you. People wanted me to draw their girlfriends. And I worked really hard from photographs. Yeah, it was... And I liked it. And I realized, wow, I'm not only appreciated, but I was really upping my skills. And your parents yeah. were supporting uh-huh. all that. My parents loved the fact, loved the fact that their son, albeit I had my days of partying, that I was home most nights in the basement where my bedroom was, with or without a girlfriend. They didn't care. I was home, drawing. Okay, huh. that's huh. awesome. 
They so loved that I was so into making art. Now, I went out and I had parties and I did things. I was a, a kid, but I was mostly home. I mean, if it was a date with my, the girls I dated, they'd come over and hang out with me. They'd do their work. They'd be listening to music, but I would draw. Huh. Oh, cool. They would read, whatever. It was kind of... Uh, did your brothers draw too, or...? No. There's not one person, as far as I know, in my entire... You're the only artist in the family? The, I'm the only artist. Oh, wow. I knew my grandfather on my mother's side, her dad, Leo. Hmm. He had some leanings towards illustration when he was a kid, but he never took it anywhere. Hmm. Like, I've never, I've never seen a drawing or... Yeah. Wow. So then you got... And I'm the only lefty. All right. Left-handed. Go lefty. Yeah. Huh. And I'm the only one in my family that's O-negative. Oh, really? And that's even more rare. Is that a universal donor? That's a universal donor. Oh, man. We'll Good thing you're here, Mark. Right? <laughs> Good thing you're here. With we'll three of us fighting. Yeah, yeah I, could, I, could, I, could, I could save all your lives. <laughs> so by being charitable as well, speaking on that generous term, yeah. I am a card-carrying member of the uh, American Red Cross. So I give blood on a regular basis. Do you really? Oh, that's yeah. awesome. So I asked really one good. time. How many lives, like, where does this blood go? Because I do R to R, and I don't know the exact terminology applied to that, but it's when you take the platelets out automatically as you sit there. It takes about an hour. So my blood is plasma. It's ready to go. Uh-huh. So it's transferred from me directly to a hospital, whoever might need it. You don't, they don't have to wow. wait and process it. Oh, that's it, oh, it happens right there. It looks like a big reel-to-reel machine. Okay. Huh? I sit there. So that's giving back, I think. Wow. So that's a way of saying thank you to the universe. Yeah. Well, you give And then back. she said I save three lives a month. You get nice. back in more ways than that, too, because you're also doing that whole series about bringing uh, awareness to artists in that made their art in the concentration camps. Yeah, I have been researching and teaching about and lecturing about clandestine art made by prisoners inside Nazi concentration camps for 15 years. I had no idea prior to any research that... There was even drawing or sketching going on, or even could be allowed, or even could be somehow even smuggled. But sure enough, there was a lot going on. I mean, in Auschwitz alone, there was probably between 20 and 30,000 artworks created. Really? Yeah. Now, this is including works that were commissioned or so-called forced by the Nazis, because they forced the artists who were talented you know, me being Jewish, of course, let's just say, let's, let's go back to 1944, you know, let's say I'm in Budapest and I'm put, I'm put on a, a, you know, I'm deported, you know, to Auschwitz. So mm-hmm. as part of the Hungarian deportation. So I'd be in the camp and they'd say, oh, this, this Jew can draw, he can paint. Let's make him do visiting dignitaries portraits. Okay. Because uh, they were always showing off the camps, you know, the visiting dignitaries. And mm. they always wanted, every office wanted a picture of Hitler and Himmler and Goering maybe... Whatever, and the artists were forced to paint. Now, they very rarely made it out alive. Mm-hmm. You know, the Catholic artists may have made it out alive, but the Jewish artists most likely didn't. But nonetheless, I did some research on this and realized, wow, you know, artists were forced to make art for the Nazis, for their homes, you know, for decoration purposes. Landscape might have been pretty landscapes or whatnot. And then I uh, learned that they began to smuggle supplies from other uh, prisoners who worked in the uh, office areas. So pens, pencils. Yeah, and they were sketching on bits of paper. Some were discarded cardboard, which prisoners used in Dachau for toilet paper. They were drawing on discarded flyers, pamphlets. Uh, They were uh, drawing and etching onto um, paper that was smuggled out, office paper. And then all the works Mm. were stored and 
under the floorboards or inside walls, between walls and the outside. The prisoners would hide them. Yeah, the prisoners would hide them. There was an underground for hiding art. Wow. Exactly. So that's, I, that's so, I so I lecture on this, and I've been doing it for about 12 years, 15 years. What, what was some of the most unique materials you saw used? Like, So the Nazis uh, wore fur coats a lot. They had fur coats or fur linings, and they needed these things cleaned, and they would hire the prisoners, not hire, they would force the prisoners to clean them, prisoners who had who were launderers prior, who had knowledge of cleaning clothes, they would, and the prisoners would pluck hair out of the fur coats and mold them into brushes for the artists. Oh. Wow. To do smuggled watercolors. Oh, my God. And then someone would smuggle out pigments. One guy smuggled out, he found a, a, like a rouge kit for a woman that was there in the camp for, I guess she was visiting a Nazi or something. And so the guy made paintings using... Or drawings using a little rouge. I mean, no kid. Yeah, you know, it's uh, necessity is the mother of invention, right? Mm-hmm. What brought your awareness to all of this? Um, one, uh, I have zero tolerance for anti-Semitism, racism, hatred. Uh, I've heard it all my life. When I was uh, in seventh grade, we had just moved from uh, Puerto Rico back to Massachusetts, and we went to a little town called Newtonville. Mm-hmm. And it was the first week of classes, and my English class class was a Tuesday, Tuesday morning, like like a nine o four bell nine something like that. And I remember walking into the class early because I didn't want to be late. I didn't. I wanted to make sure I got the right desk so I could be in the front row or being somewhere in the center of the room. And I sat down at the desk. There's no names in the desks, you know. And I remember this dude was looking over at me because I'm the new kid, mm-hmm. right? I didn't know anybody. No one knew me. Right. I remember Carolyn. She was pretty cute. I remember looking at her earlier uh, in, the, in the assembly in the morning, morning assembly, I guess, if I remember correctly. And then I'm sitting down, and about a, a minute later, the teacher's not even in the room yet. About a minute later, I guess he was the teacher that wanted to let all the kids assemble before he walks in. For whatever reason, he wasn't in yet, but the class was just about to start. And a second later, I hear this kid to my right. He just walked up to my desk, and he was standing there. And he, I remember he had this duster coat on, like a long duster kind of coat. like a Black trench coat? Yeah, like a, like a trench coat. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. even better. I should use that from now on when I'm telling the story. <laughs> but a duster, you know, like, I, know, I mean, duster's a cool jacket. So, yeah, it's a great, yeah. And I, look, his, I remember his name. I'm not going to say it, but his last name was D'Angelo, and I'm not going to give you his first name. I'll never forget this kid. And he looks down at me, and I look up at him, and I'm thinking it's going to be like, hey, Mark, nice to meet you. I'm... But it's not. He goes, get out of my desk, kike. What? First of all, let me tell you something. I never, I didn't know what kike meant. I never Uh heard of the word kike. But I knew in a millisecond, you know, your brain just goes, goes, Uh starts to wire and connect and everything's beginning to become clear. It's almost like laser. It's like Iron Man just zooming in on 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 a villain. So the first thing went to my mind was in a millisecond, less than a millisecond, if there's a millisecond what what is a kike? Uh-huh. It can't be good. Yeah. It's got to mean I'm a Jew. But how does he know I'm a Jew? Well, what are you going to do, Mark? And I just jumped up and punched him right in the mouth. <laughs> and I started pounding him and pounding him yeah. and pounding him. I good. Just, and, then, and then the teacher walked in and I felt this wicked arm on my neck. Flamed me up like a rag doll. I'm thinking, holy crap, this dude is powerful. Uh-huh. And I look at him and he's like at least 6'8". And again, I'm, you know, I'm in like seventh grade. 
wasn't a big kid, but, but that was the first time in my life, first time in my life I ever had to fight. Up to that point, I never had a fight. Huh. But I was somehow ripe, ready, and eager. Uh-huh. And don't insult me. Don't ever come to me and start, you know, tossing anti-Semitic. Right. And I'm thinking, okay, who is this dude? So we both go to the principal's office. The teacher stood there and said, explain yourselves. And I, I went first. I'm the new kid. And I said, this is exactly what happened. And then this kid went. He goes, nah, that's not what happened. No, of course. The teacher said, Mark, go to class. They, they suspended this kid. Really? Oh, so good that, that day the in the lunchroom, was... they knew he was trouble. That day in the lunchroom, because I know what Mr. What he did was he, I went to class and he got Carolyn and the dude next to me, his name is Billy, to both go and tell what, say what happened. And, okay. And, they, and, they, and I know they told my story. So they told the truth. So um, I'm in the cafeteria that day. Now it's about like 12, you know. I'm in the cafeteria, and uh, I think the toughest kid in our grade was this kid named Jones, last name. He's a black dude, right? And he's walking into the classroom, and he walks towards me, like makes a, just walks towards me. I'm sitting up, I'm sitting with this dude, Billy, who is next to me in class, like now he's my buddy. And, because nobody liked D'Angelo anyway, it doesn't matter. But it, tu- it turns out he was a prick. So this dude, Jones, is walking across the cafeteria floor straight towards me. And people are like, I'm telling you, man, it was like this like mini, it's like innocent prison system scene here. Yeah, totally. And I'm just sitting there eating. I couldn't wait to eat these mashed potatoes because they smelled so good, you know. I don't care how old they've been sitting there. They just, the gravy was sitting at, it was very, you know, for me, it was very seductive, you know. And I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm really hungry. The meatloaf, the Salisbury steak, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love that shit. So yeah. I was hungry and I'm thinking... Don't mess with my meal, but this kid walks right towards me. He extends his hand. I shake it. He goes, yo, my name is so-and-so Jones. I heard what you did this morning. I got your back. Really? Yeah, oh, and I was man. like, really? Right. Yeah, I swear. I was like, all right, thank you. I didn't even know what I got your back meant, kind of, you know, but I'm like, okay, I got yours. He goes, all right. And they walked away. Huh. I was the coolest kid in the school. Yeah. Right, you're someone who's willing to make moves when when asked of you. You know all these clutch decisions in your life, all these clutch moves. Do you like? Do you attribute that to some of your future success? Just on the fly thinking. It seems like you're improving all the time. Well, you know, Marshall. That's that, so. Thank you. That's beautiful. Oh, um, like I've never looked at it that way. Okay. But someone once said, and I take, I guess I take great pride in this, but I can definitely think of my feet. Uh-huh. But these were clutch moments. Yeah. And I think I need to be pushed, you know, with respect to what we spoke about earlier, the dualities and these extremes. I need to be pushed to an extreme to realize that change is, is, is necessary. Mm-hmm. Or, that's, or, act, mm. or, a certain, or a different kind of action is necessary. Okay. So there's minimal examples that... We all go through where, say, you know, you're working on a series of paintings. Say you're like, you know, in your early 20s and you just got out of school and like no one's reacting to them. Well, you know, that's a good sign that you need to make a change or Mm. figure something out. You know, Mm -hmm. not that you're making art for an audience, but, you know, you have to reassess and reevaluate at moments in your lives. And I take those moments of evaluation and assessment as challenges. And Uh I love a good, healthy, robust challenge. So the more extreme the challenge, the more I'm going to bring it and affect change huh. for the better. So do That's you beautiful. choose that 
moment to say, like you were saying, like if in your 20s, if this series wasn't working, I'm just assuming that you were. I don't know if that's true, if you were working on something. It's definitely wasn't? true in my case, but I think okay. it's true in a lot of cases. I only bring it up now because it's representative of our the context of, of our careers and who we are. I mean, we're all artists and, you know, sometimes, you know, reaction's really important. It, it could affect us dramatically. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you're not strong and confident and, and unique in your position and the way you perceive things, you want to hear, always you want to hear good things. If you hear, But if you don't hear anything, it's the worst kind of reaction. So... I was working in a body of work like we all do as artists, you know, and mm-hmm. sometimes if you don't get, hey, man, these are the best things you've ever done or this is the coolest shit I've ever seen, when someone says, I don't know, man, <laughs> that's horrible. So it did mm-hmm. happen, and I began to reassess, reevaluate what, I, what it was I was making, and I, I changed. Mm. Because it, cause look, look, man, I'm not, you know, I don't know, you know, this whole existential approach to art. Never really understood it. But I don't make art for myself. I don't make art like in a cave or in a bubble. I make art because I like my audiences. I, let, I make mm. art because in a way, I look at it as an entertaining possibility. Like I have okay. a lot of stories to tell. Mm. I like being in front of people. Mm-hmm. I think I have a really good sense of humor too. I think I'm rather animated. I want to make sure that this gets across in my works, both visually and, and in a narrative format. And mm. if it's not working, I'm going to change. So is that when you chose like, the, the work that you do now where you're re- representing the, the Western, art, Western art canon and you're also like you also have these jokes the, the side jokes that are also part of your work yeah people call them puns people call them winks visual winks I heard oh recently, winks yes which I thought was brilliant I think yeah it, visual I think winks is great right? visual winks it's a parody right going on because visual winks shows a knowing it's you're including the audience in on it and you're like, hey, like this is, you know what I'm saying? It yeah. shows a savvy, the person doling out winks is a little in control and has a savvy, I think, more than just a pun, you know? Yeah, I, you know, what, what's, okay, so with that, and I agree with you, because I am inclusive in my work. I want to make sure that everybody who sees my work is somehow included on the level that I believe that's possible, but also what's plausible for them. Because, you know, let's face it, life is about perception. Mm-hmm. I mean, one person's interpretation or perception of something, say, like, uh, Velázquez is Las Maninas. You know, there's a historical component to that. There's a narrative to it. There's an absolute uh, factual history to each person in that painting. Mm-hmm. Yes. But really, the painting in and of itself is really incredibly based on visual tricks, seduction, and all these different elements. Yeah. I actually, I want you to get back to what you're saying, but you, ha- I'd heard you describe that painting a little bit. And just for our listeners, you were really insightful about some of the things in that painting. What, what specifically do you like about that okay. painting? There's no doubt, I think, the greatest aspect of that painting, and greatest in the sense that it's profound, it's, 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 um, it stabilizes the viewer, and at the same time really seduces the viewer visually. And that is what I refer to as the invisible foreground. Okay. When you are standing in front of that painting, first of all, you have to really begin to figure out where people are in space because yeah. that's very deep space. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you have to figure out where you are as the viewer in that painting because you're mm-hmm. not really outside that painting. You may be outside it physically because in the realm of things, right. it's a painting. But when you're standing in front of that painting and Velázquez is looking at you, mm-hmm. directly at you with the back of his canvas mm-hmm. to you, so the front of the canvas is to him, you're wondering, what is it that he's painting? Is he now addressing you as the sitter? Are you now the person who 
is the mainstay of that painting? Are you the most important thing now? So what he's doing, in a sense, is that he's telling you, the viewer, you matter more than the people in this painting. But mm. you, as the viewer, begin to think, well, then where, wait a minute, how is this possible? Well, at least for me. So huh. this painting has so many layers, but it all is created by virtue of what I've come to call this invisible foreground. So Velasquez puts you in the painting. Even though you're standing outside the painting, like I said, you're, in, you're automatically in it because he's not only looking directly at you, but he's painting you. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. He's looking at you with his palette ready. He's painting, yeah. And the canvas is this monstrous, epic-sized canvas. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He, so, because if he's painting the Infanta, where is she? Uh-huh. Behind you? He's saying you are in this painting. Whether right. you like it or not, whether you understand it or not, it's got to be one of the most complex, if not the most complex composition in the history of painting. Because aren't there the figures in the mirror, too, that's kind of implied that they're further behind the king and you, queen. It could be, yeah. So right. where are they? So what, yeah. in essence, or is it, you know, presuming it's, a, it's, a, it's, not, it's, it's a mirror, presuming it's not a portrait. Right. And they're uh-huh. sitting on a distant wall. Uh-huh. But where is the guy going behind you then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh-huh. going through a back door that's all lit up. His silhouette is entering that, exiting the painting. Or is he entering the room that you're in? Like, it's so, it's not even complicated. It's just joyful. It's the most amazing oh, it's joyful. painting. It's loaded with excitement. It's loaded with possibilities. It doesn't, there's no, there's no beginning, middle, or end to that painting. Hmm. So and it's so much about the viewer's ego. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so much about the viewer's ego. So if you feel so satisfied with that painting, what drives you to insert yourself by, by reproducing that painting and inserting the, the disco ball? The Are you, ball. like, inviting us to the party? Yeah, so, so, that's, so, that's, so I'm going to give you a very simple answer. Because I like to be complicated sometimes and complex, but really when it comes down to it, given my Puma track jacket, <laughs> you, know, you know, my high tops, and I'll watch a hockey game any day with anyone with a glass of bourbon. But I'm going to give you this simple answer. Somebody, somebody asked me, what do you feel is the most celebrated painting in the history of art? Mm-hmm. And then they interjected, the Night Watch? Mm-hmm. Mona Lisa? I was like, no, no. Las Meninas by Velasquez. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's like, oh, yeah, it's a heck of a painting, isn't it? I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a true celebration of skill, craft, Narrative, composition, devices, paint, color. You know, this painting I said, because I have a credo when I paint, strike the eye, seduce the mind. I said, if any painting does this in the historical canon of mm. Western painting, it's this painting. Strike should be the eye, seduce the mind. Yeah, strike the eye, seduce the mind. So I said, this painting does that. She says, okay, I don't know, fast forward six months, and I'm in my studio thinking, okay, I'm working now with appropriation, juxtapositioning, Wow, it's about time I deal with this painting. How am I going to approach it? I'm going to celebrate it. How do I celebrate? Mm-hmm. I don't know. A fucking disco ball. Mm. <laughs> Who doesn't like a disco ball? <laughs> Throw a party in the middle of the painting. Right? The king and queen. The exactly. And they would all just be turned on. I mean, Velasquez would probably love one if he had one. Yeah. They could have right. made one back in those days. No one thought of it. But they certainly had mirrors. Right? So I put it in there and I realized the light moving around created... And another uh, an invisible aspect. So you would now, right. so now you were going to like duck and think that the light was going to reflect on you. Like I wanted to That's add. That's what I was. Yeah, it feels I wanted like to it add to the spatial you. arrangements and the relationship that the viewer had with the space. So it's like the convex mirror that's added into all those Dutch paintings, right? And that mirror works. Yeah. 
So that's how it started. That's what I did. And that was all in the middle of my, uh, you know, 2015 of all my appropriate, appropriating and juxtaposing Western historical art, uh, namely paintings, into my paintings. Wow. But it all got me thinking about the voyeuristic tendencies that that painting created, that the Velasquez Las Meninas created, very much about voyeurism. You know, not mm. only is this invisible foreground inviting us to step into the painting, but we're also wondering who's behind us, mm-hmm. right. let alone what's happening in the painting but he's looking directly at us and I thought wow this is a really attractive element for me to start working with bringing the viewer into the painting by virtue of a voyeuristic tendency but the viewers being watched too so it's like an exercise in seeing and being seen as you the viewer absolutely yeah Uh, in Velasquez's work yes 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 and it was very much inspiration but not to take it that route I just thought about the way that we observe things and because I was a kid growing up in the magnifying glass and binoculars Mm -hmm. looking at things and studying things I realized that I'm on the subway a lot and I'm in line a lot and you wouldn't be in line unless there was a back of a head in front of you and I'm never in the subway alone I don't remember when the last time that happened (laughs) be a weird experience (laughs) there's a lot of backs of heads in front of me go to Van Cortlandt it's the last stop Oh, yeah, it's not going to happen. So, so I'm paying attention to hairstyles. I'm paying attention to backs of heads. I'm paying attention to necks. Uh-huh. But I was just, it was all, inter- I'm, I'm internalizing it. You know, artists internalize things. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. you never know when they're going to come out. But I was ripe for a transition, and that's what it was. But it didn't happen till a real-life experience. All my paintings, by the way, are based on real-life experiences. Something has to inspire me and motivate me to be to get into that studio and be productive to visualize these experiences. What's a, what's a for example, of a real-life experience? I'll tell you right now. So I'm in upstate New York. I'm going to be interviewed at a uh, public broadcasting, uh, public radio station. Driving around, I'm lost. Okay. It's sort of like uh, a mild winter day. Okay. There's no snow. No it's, snow. It's safe driving. It's cold. Okay. And I, there was a wood, there was a wood uh, stove place off this road that I was lost at, you know. Hmm. I tried my GPSing, but I didn't, I lost the address of the place, and I wasn't about to make some phone calls and look like I had been lost. I don't want to be that guy. So I got out. I parked my car at this wood stove place, and I walked in, and there was a line, like eight people in line. I don't know what they were doing, getting stoves, but I knew it was a line, and I'm like, I'm in a hurry. So I'm standing behind this tall dude, and... uh, Again, looking up. Yeah. <laughs> That's the third time. Yeah, I'm well, sorry. I'm only 5'10". I don't know. But, no, no. But he was a big dude. I just coat. think it's always interesting. Like, you always seem to have this kind of iconic view of people in your stories. You know, it's yeah. interesting. I've never looked at that. Wait till, you, wait till I tell you about the res. So, sorry, I didn't mean to... Yeah, no, it's true. I like these... No, stories. listen. The more you interject, the more I'm learning about myself. So, <laughs> otherwise... I'm you just know. trying to... I'm kind of inserting my... Because you were talking about the view. So, I'm inserting myself in what... What it is, I'm trying to imagine how, not inserting myself, but trying to imagine what it is that you're seeing, and you're describing it so well, I feel like yeah. I am seeing it. Yeah, I'll get so more descriptive. So that came up a, again. He's so a big anyway, dude, a pseudo-biker-looking dude. Big leather jacket. Uh-huh. Fur-lined collar. No, not, not fur-lined. Lamb-wool-lined. You know what else? That's a total side note. Putting yourself in a scene like that, talking, I've been listening to a lot of true crime stuff. That's more effective than the polygraph test. They throw that out. But if you're explaining a story just like you're doing, I look up at the guy. He's there. That puts you in the scene, and that's something that is, like, true. 
You know what I'm saying? Because most people tell stories from an emotional sense and aren't a viewer in their own story if they're making it up. Well, that's so. interesting. And Isn't that that's wild? what's happening in yeah. your painting. That's what's happening in your painting. So can we talk about this later and maybe write this down? Because I would like this, like, to make more sense of this. But it's I will tell you that it gets very emotional for me what happened. Okay. So there's an emotional side to this that prompted me to get into the studio and paint about this. Uh-huh. So it wasn't a, it's not a narrative per se, or I'm not telling a story necessarily with my new paintings. But when this happened, I thought, wow. Wow, what an epiphany. Because I got to tell you, man, we all judge people. Mm-hmm. I know we do in certain ways, and even and I do, but not so much anymore, right? So this is what happened. So he's a tall dude, you know, like I said, a pseudo biker looking cat, you know, he had like a little goatee, a little earring in one ear, but I'm looking at him from behind, you know? I don't see the front of him. And I'm standing in line thinking, do I ask this fucking guy? I don't think so. Like, do, I, do I hurry this line? Because, you know, they live up there. They're cold. They're probably looking for wood or getting their stoves. And who am I? Like, you know, hey, man, I came up from Brooklyn. I'm a little lost. You know, like, anybody want to help me out over here? Like, I felt like I'm one of the beastie boys, you know. Hey, can anybody get some attention? So I was like uh, thinking, I, anyway, maybe I said something. Or like, God, I, I don't know if I can wait this long. The guy turns around. So his neck is where my eyes are. <laughs> so he turns around. His chin is above you know, my forehead. So he's uh, about a head taller than me. Okay. And he turns around, and all I do is focus on his throat. <laughs> it was right there in front of me. And I swallowed. Uh, uh, like, whoop. I had a lump in my throat. Yeah, like a cartoon. <laughs> but not because of being nervous or scared, because I was judging him. And when I saw his neck, my heart sank. Huh? On his neck was a tattoo okay. of a little circle. And inside the circle, it read 1993 to 1995 with little angel wings wrapping around the throat. So his whole neck was tattooed. Oh, like a, chi- a child? A child. Or yeah, yeah, okay. His kid. Shit. So I just looked at him. Yeah, it was a big, Oof. sad shit moment. Yeah. And I said to myself, Mark, you idiot. You were judging this guy, like thinking he was like those biker dudes you used to hang around with in high school that stabbed you. I mean, God, what do you, come on, man. What a lesson and what an epiphany. And I thought, wow, a throat tattoo, a neck tattoo. It used to creep me out. But huh. this guy chose to put it on his, his throat, meaning everybody's going to know tell his everybody. kid died. He's uh-huh. telling the world, I need sympathy. Uh huh. The uh-huh. toughest dude in line, who I'm presuming is a jerk. Or just not a talkative cat, or not somebody I wanted. Like I don't know what it was. I'm not afraid of anybody, but I just didn't want to bother him that day for directions. Mm-hmm. But here he is. He turned around, and I'm looking at his throat. And then he turned back around again, and I just said, "Excuse me, I'm lost. Can you give me directions to this radio station?" This t-? he says, "Yeah, man, easily. It's right. You're not that far." Huh. And he was like the most gentle huh. soul. Aww. And I touched him on the shoulder, and I said. Bless your heart, man, because we all got rough times, man. Hmm. But I want to let you know I don't know you, but, you know, somebody, people are thinking of you. He's like, thanks, man. And that wow. was it. And I walked out and found the place, went in for my interview. Couldn't stop thinking about this dude. Wow. A year later, I'm starting to do drawings of people and plausible neck tattoos. Huh. Okay. Another year later. Now it's 2015, I dropped the idea, I'm not thinking about it, and I'm starting to do the appropriation juxtapositioning. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. art on art, art within art. You know, I've been doing it since 2012, but I still wanted to kind of get a tattoo into my work. But if you notice, none of, my, none of those paintings have tattoos from that period. And then right. I started thinking more about tattoos, more and more about body modification, more and more about how we are expressing ourselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, more and more, it seemed like most of my students were getting tattoos, even the really nice ones. Yeah. That's true. It's, it's, it's mainstream now. So it's mainstream. And I thought, you know, I'm about pop culture. I'm about mainstream. Let, let, right. let, let me ride this. Yeah, I really believe that I have a very good pulse on the pop culture. I think you do, I too. I think that's pretty clear. So yeah. I started doing more sketches of, of the backs of heads. And I remember from all the graduations I sat in on for where I taught, all I saw were backs of heads. All the faculty meetings, backs of heads, all uh-huh. the subway rides, backs of, my, there was a, a lot, There's a lot of backs of heads in our lives. And I took notice of it. Well, it's one of the only times you can really stare at someone. You can it's stare the, at the back dude, of the head. Dude, it goes right back to the voyeuristic <laughs> thing. You look at someone that's facing you, you're like, okay, I got to look away. Uh, yeah. You can't look anywhere else because they're going to see you. But in the back of a the head, there's something really beautiful and sexy and seductive and visually striking about a neck. Uh-huh. About a hairstyle, about the ears moving out, about the redness of the ears against the sun. There's a lot going on there. It's a not lizard to mention through a binoculars that isn't going to squirm yeah. when you're staring at it. So I'm right there. Don't have access to the to the to the profile, so you you can apply any kinds of story to to that person. Yeah, and, yeah, and by virtue of the neck, or by painting something interesting on the neck, or by explicitly stating a narrative in a tattoo, like I thought, I would start doing it through body modification, backs of heads and necks, based on that story that happened three years prior. Wow, that's so beautiful. interesting to hear the the trajectory of that, like where the naissance of it happened, where the where the birth of it happened, real experience, and how it comes out later, like. Yeah, I, well, you know, people tell me I'm like the, the master percolator. Like, I let ideas sit for months, sometimes years. But do, do they all have, like, a visceral root to them? Like, we've all been involved in art schools and gone to art schools, and there's such a heady, intellectual vibe to it that almost feels like you, if you stayed in a cave and just sort of propped your head on your hand and thought hard enough, you could come up with something. But it seems like you're collecting data through Real life experiences, meeting people, seeing what they're like, observing people in real time—that percolates and then goes into. But also the work observation you do. of pop culture. Observation of pop culture, sure. Through media, right? Or yeah. Uh, Where is that coming from? Where TMZ. Is okay. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so a lot of my students, hey, uh... a lot of my students. <laughs> do you? That's all I. Have to a say. lot of my students were very hip to uh, a variety of things. Um, I just pay attention, you know, and, and, you know, you don't have to watch the Kardashians to understand the pulse. You know, it comes from being, everybody's got to be a media whore to some extent. Uh, you have to understand that music is, what, probably the greatest force in creativity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, oh, filmmaking, which is me. the greatest medium, but the greatest force really in the end is music. Yeah. I mean, when I put on Beethoven or Metallica, I am moved in uh-huh. ways that my body is just saying, Mark... This life is good because it's again, it's the visceral medium. Yeah, definitely. Those are my two. I mean, I love both of them. If you liked Metallica, the S and M Metallica. Remember that one? Yeah, it's good stuff. <laughs> it's man. good stuff. But you know, I mean, I love listening to Dwight Yoakam. Oh yeah, Thousand Miles from Nowhere. Yeah, dude. So you know, I sing that, and I'm like just rocking along. And Fuck yeah. I mean, there's so much good music out there. There's just so much good music. But it's visceral. But That's... I listen to pop music because they're tapping into. You know, this subculture that 
you just can't run from it. It's everywhere. Right. And pop music has a certain formula to it. Uh-huh. And I always think there's a certain formula sometimes to art making. There's a certain formula to good recipes. I mean, you know, mm. I don't frown mm. on formulaic uh, uh, construction. I think if you know your craft, you know your audience, why not make money at what you do? So the first thing about art school, let me tap into this, was that – and I'm also very intrigued by Beyonce and Jay-Z. I love hip-hop and how it went sort of pop and how it went back. Right. You know, you uh-huh. get the Wu-Tang shirt on. You know, it's like – I mean, I listened to Tupac, let's just say, and there's many rappers out there who would say, ah, Tupac sold out, you know, and I don't really care what anybody says about anything, to be honest with you. Okay. I'll listen to their opinions. But he does rap a lot about his mom, and he does rap a lot about politics. Now, granted, he was super famous and super hip-hop cultural mm-hmm. that he, he was played more than anybody else, and a lot of people, but then Biggie sings about East Coast, he sings See, about Biggie's, West Coast. You know, and I'm my guy. You know, I get it, like, like... It's all good, but they were making references too to other things like, um, like you know, I'm not you know the best example is like when uh, you know Destiny's Child, right? You know? uh-huh. I mean, what they sang about are, are real life situations that people are in. It's about love and love lost. Uh huh. Yeah. And I'm yeah. thinking, who doesn't sing about that? Right. Well, yeah. Shakespeare. They, bingo. They, exactly. Listen, dude. Beethoven. I mean, it's like uh-huh. I listen to his music and I think this guy, you know, he lived a miserable life. You know. Probably was the first true uh, case of colitis, but never was diagnosed. He's probably had, he's probably the first IBS person. So, you know, he probably had irritable <laughs> yeah. bowel syndrome, but he never knew it. The poor bastard. But he wrote about love lost. He wrote about love and the glory of life. And so all these people are singing about it. And the pop music is really about the angst that we've gone through in high school. It just may be a different formula, and I pay attention to it because I find it intriguing that there are many ways, many many ways of explaining the lives, the lives that we live, the, the world that we live in, the universe that we somehow seem to be a part of. Mm-hmm. And I used to frown on pop culture. It was uncool, you know, but it's really, there's some, really, there's some brilliance behind it. And some of the beats are really good. And, and, and they moved me. Like, I got to tell you, I was listening to Taylor Swift recently and that when the phone's ringing and she says, hello, the old Taylor Swift... <laughs> <laughs> oh, can she come to the phone? Oh, she can't come to the phone. And it's like, doo, 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 because she's dead. I'm thinking, it's like, you know what? That's like, you're announcing to the world you're done with your old crap, but you're moving on. But it's like such a creative way to do it. Uh-huh. Who wants to talk about in a happy, upbeat song? I'm dead. Like, no, I found that to be kind of brilliant. I don't know if that was a producer. It doesn't really matter. I pay attention right. to various types of music because I am fueled by the lyrics and by the pulse and the beat. So... And the poetry that's in it. There's a lot of poetry, right? It's perception. Sure. So yeah. there are some poets like Dylan, who I don't think can be beat in the history of music. Right. And Neil Young, to me, is one of my favorites. Uh-huh. When I listen to them, there's storytelling, there's music going. It, it, it's, it's really like the, the Las Maninas of the music industry. Uh-huh. For me, yeah, at yeah. Least, for me, at least. Mm-hmm. You know, Do you Dylan. find that like pop culture or like sort of poppy songs is a sort of good vehicle to communicate your visceral feelings because I imagine you as more of like death metal punk rock type yeah, of guy yeah it's funny um, you know because you're you react to things in a split second like when that guy stepped up to you you punched him yeah and, and yeah. Cool. that was no second guessing to your thought process so that's happened I'm several curious, times I'm curious just like we gotta hear how you approach your art because <laughs> you know you bring in all these like emotional feelings but then you're like okay I'm gonna Maybe turn it, uh, make it a little sweeter. So maybe 
you know, so people can relate to it more? Is that how you're approaching it? I like that it? question. You know, I don't know if people, I don't try to do anything except in real life. So in art, I don't really try to please a particular audience. I'm, I'm hopeful and right. confident in my output that there's going to be something, not for everyone, but for certain people and for someone and, uh, you know, people I might not even know. But I never think about my audience before I make a painting. Right. So I never think about mm -hmm. how much sugar and spice and all things nice or dogs' tails and rats' feet, whatever it is that go into it. Like That's I don't boys are made of. Like I don't think about that because I do know that I have a very, I am extremely emotional. Yeah, I know it. I've been through a lot of my life. I've been through a lot of sadness, a lot of highs, a lot of lows, a lot of, you know, like I don't know what the word might be, but aggression. Like I've like I like I used to really like to fight. Mm. Huh. but I also like to be left alone I like to cuddle all this stuff you know I like to just kind of like chill out so to, sum, to answer that and to sum it up is I on my phone have playlists right playlists and I have a playlist for almost every mood that I can be in mm -hmm. and we all know moods are endless we all go through them right, right. you don't eat for like four hours, you know, your shift, your mood's going to shift because of sugar levels in your body. Mm -hmm. So I have a playlist for that, you know. It's called the hypoglycemia list, right? <laughs> oh, no, I need that list. Yeah, well, we all do need it at times, right? <laughs> Mine's a little more intense, right? So there's oh, no Nirvana in that. There's nothing that's going to get me all shaky and wanting to jump. There's definitely no Ramones. Yeah. But, you know, there's some Dwight Yoakam in there. There's the Handsome Family. There's some Merle Haggard. Oh, yeah. There's some Queen. You know, there's stuff in there that's going to lull me and say... As I'm listening to it, find the a bagel, you know. <laughs> so, or get that, or buy a piece of cheese now, you idiot. So, yeah. um, uh, but there are there are also playlists that I listen to when I'm in the bath, or when I'm on the bus, or when I'm riding the subway. You know, that's like Marilyn Manson. That's Metallica. That's some heavy, throbbing, pulsating music that just lets me say, kind of to myself, "Fuck you! I'm just going somewhere. Leave me alone." Like, because you know. What's the playlist for painting? So for painting, it's, it, this is wild because I haven't figured it out yet. Okay. But I will tell you that there are two things that, that I could listen to and never have to change. One is Anonymous 4, Hildegard von Bingen. They found this nun's uh, musical uh, scores, I guess, in the 1300s. Really? And it, it was hidden for years. And then somebody found it. It was transcribed in this band, this group of four women who sing like angels. Put it to, put it to words. So it's like, it's hymns and masses. Mostly oh. hymns. And wow, that's beautiful. It is the most amazing. It's, 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 if angels could be heard today, this would come the closest to that. Oh, wow. So I could play that without skipping a beat. I'm just like, I'm off. So but it's oh, not always the most... Like on a loop or... Oh, no, I, they have like six, seven albums. So oh, okay. well, it could go on for seven hours. Okay. Wow. But by the time it loops, you don't even know where the heck... You don't even... It doesn't matter. Like, it could loop and loop and loop. Okay. I listen to that a lot when I just want to go into the zone. Mm -hmm. Because, one, I'm not paying attention to it because it's mostly in Latin. Mm -hmm. But... Um, that can go, and then, you know, I, you know I, I wish I could answer that more definitively. I don't, I tried it's the Ramones, I can't do it. After three songs, I'm jumping, I can't do it. I tried, I tried Zep, I tried going back to old, uh, some old school bluegrass, which I love on Sunday mornings. I listen to bluegrass on Sunday mornings. I think you said something important there, though, was that 
you you don't understand what what they're saying. You don't know the, the language, right? No distractions. So you don't have the verbal distraction. Yeah, you don't have you don't have the analytical. What are they listening to? What are they saying? True. That part of your brain is it's all off. feeling. And I don't have the visuals. So I got to tell you, man. So I was right. listening to Biggie this morning in my studio, right? It's too many visuals. Right. I'm thinking <laughs> Brooklyn. I'm thinking how it changed. I'm thinking, you know, all this stuff about being in the corner and shooting. It's like, you know what? You know, putting, putting like carrots in my baby girl's ears. I'm thinking too many visuals <laughs> Living here. my life without fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's too much. And so every... So I, I, so music. That he's I don't, a painter, though. He's painting with words as he's. Yeah, I agree he's with you. Cool. A lot of music I like, probably you like. You know, it's because it is visually seductive. Uh-huh. But I mean, when you're painting, isn't that? It's like an interaction. It's a little right? much, I yeah. Quite, right. I like to listen to. It's like a what? It's like a what? I, yeah, I don't need that exactly. Yeah, about, you make your own. But images. I like to have music that I don't. That doesn't exactly like doesn't bring the pictures into your head. Right. I have many. I have too many pictures. I'm, I'm in my. I'm in my studio to edit. Uh huh. I don't need more. Yeah. 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 Plus, editing is really, really difficult. Yeah, talk to me about that, because that, because you must have like, how do you, how do you make that decision? Like, you have like a, a ton of ideas for this one painting. How do you make the, the decision? Okay, this belongs to this painting. This is superfluous. I can leave that out. Does it happen in the process of your working on the painting itself? Do you sketch it out and say, and you draw it in, and then when you eventually start working on it, you're like, okay, actually that thing doesn't work, and I'm gonna move it to the left or the right. Are you working on Photoshop and figuring that out? How, does, how do you do that kind of editing? You said that so well, I just wanna say exactly, and leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> but I'm not going to. <laughs> but that was well said, because I think that's the general notion of arriving at a painting is you sketch it, you think about it, you internalize it more, you sit on it, you sketch again, and, you know, you, it's a process uh, of sort of self-editing. You don't even realize you're editing because editing can be tedious, but you're just rethinking things. And I always rethink things. Hmm. I was very indecisive. I still may be on some levels, but hmm. uh, there's no greater joy than finally making a decision about something, mm-hmm. you know, mm. and, moving, and moving forward. There's, a great, answer, there's right? a great joy to that. You ask so, the question and you get the answer. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, you know, I've usually been indecisive, but I do remember at times when you do make a decision, it's, 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 it's an, a feeling of exaltation, like, wow, you know, it's accomplishment. You mm-hmm. find joy in it. I do find joy in it. Like, I found joy in being appreciated for my talents in high school. Like, so I, you really want me to draw your girlfriend? Okay, how much? I don't know, 30 bucks. Huh. You know, a little one-inch by two-inch pencil right. drawing. So, um you know, it's good to be appreciated, right, for things that we take great pride in. So I have maybe, I don't know, maybe a thousand sketchbooks. Mm, They're in my studio. They're in the bathrooms. They're in the bedroom. They're in the kids' rooms. They're in the the living room. They're they're all over the place. Mm. I mean, they're everywhere. You know, it's like... So as soon as you have an idea... In in my pockets. So if I have an idea, I either... Usually, oddly, I write it out. I don't even draw it out because it's just okay. too much going on. You write the words. So out. I write out words, key words like back of head, neck tattoo. Mm. Huh. And then oh, I'll that's good. and then I'll see that and then I'll do a little drawing when I have a little more time. Because my ideas, as you guys know, man, they come flying in and flying out. They're like they're like the monarchs <laughs> migrating right. into Mexico and landing. You know, they're like billions. They're everywhere. Like you just can't keep up with them. Oh, look at that one. What do you mean? Look at that one. No, look at that one. Look at that one. <laughs> that, my, these are my ideas. One of my favorite Stephen Wright lines was, 
he's just a receptionist for his brain. <laughs> I thought that was so great. Like stuff comes in and he writes it down. And that's his that's how he formulates his jokes. Wicked pisser. <laughs> yeah, from your hometown. Alright, we should take a break though. Yeah, let's take a break. Yeah. Quick break. I got Steven Wright's one of my favorite people. That's what I try to sound like. Kim, you got a question loaded you wanna, yeah. you wanna start with? Loaded. <laughs> um, so we just had the art fair week, and you were saying that you were doing super well with the art fairs right now. I, I just wanted to say my my perception of the art fairs, because you said not to have this love-hate relationship, and I kind of do have this love-hate, but maybe that's because, I don't know, it's just kind of overwhelming, but when I was walking through the art fairs, I was conscious of this kind of superficiality that was going on where everybody was using art as a backdrop to do photo ops. Like, what is art then if it becomes just this object that I can take my picture in front of? That's where my love-hate relationship comes up with it. Well, that's your problem. Okay. Fine. Great answer. But I also did see a lot of great work there, too. So that's the love-hate. I understand you can have love-hate relationships with most things in life. I just, you know, you go back to that old adage of pick your battles or choose your battles. I don't, I don't have the energy really to love-hate anything about the art world. But the art fairs, I mean, isn't everything nowadays a photo op? I mean, you know, I went to this restaurant before I came over here to get a bagel and cream cheese. And this woman at the booth with her buddy were photographing their food. I was in, it was a freaking diner. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I thought to myself, it's not my business. I don't really care. But, I mean, everything's a photo op. I mean, you know, dog poop in the corner of your school is a photo op. I mean, so art is probably a really good photo op. Well, like, that's a better – it's I a mean, step up from that. I know, sure. granted, but you might as well, like, turn it into uh, positive. I mean, uh, you know, it's so it's – so, okay, it's so easy – Right? In life to be negative. It's so, it's much more challenging uh-huh. to be positive. I agree with that. That's true. Yeah. And I will say one thing about the art fairs. I mean, come on. It's like uh, a mall of art. I mean, how yeah. do you not like, how do, how do you, how, how can anyone dislike that? I mean, everything is so <laughs> convenient. There's VIP lounges, there's espresso at any second, there's beer, there's wine, there's $20 champagne. I mean, why not? So what? You know, so your pack a flask. I don't know, but you can at least. <laughs> <laughs> also a great answer. But there's a lot of art and there's a lot of fun and it's a lot of meet and greets. I don't That's really true. go looking at the arts. I don't really. My photo ops are with people. Mm. Well, their photo ops are hopefully with me or with, you know, it's about meeting and greeting. It's about making connections. It's about navigating and, and networking. Okay. And if you're not good at it or don't know how to do it, you should never do it. Because mm-hmm. then you don't know, you can't get your head wrapped around how to be. You know, there's an etiquette to everything in life, right? So sure. art fairs, everybody wants to meet another person that can help advance their careers or help nurture their ideas or, you know, the art is secondary if you ask me. Okay. So. But you have like this, it seems like a real love of people. I remember when I showed up at your studio a couple of years back just to ask you about how you you seem to really enjoy the process of meeting people and meeting them on their terms. And you're really insightful about that stuff, you know? Just like, because I, I was in a real cynical place and just wanting to know, you seem to get a lot of enjoyment out of that, you know? Do you see yourself as a people person? Yeah, there's a Yiddish word. It's called mensch. Uh-huh. I'm a mensch. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I, I think, uh, 
not everybody has the gift of the gab. You know, some folks may think I have too much of a gift of the gab, or some folks may not think it at all. I, I'm quite happy in the way I speak to people, mm-hmm. the way I communicate to people. I think there was a quote, perhaps Maya Angelou uh, said something about, you know, it's not really, I don't, I don't know if it was her that it originated with, but it makes perfect sense even since the advent of human speech, that it's really not uh, what you say to people that they remember it's more about how you made them feel. Oh my God! Yeah, that's so. And true. I so believe in that. Yeah, I've uh-huh. always believed in that. And my, you know, I talk to people like I'm like I'm listening. Uh huh. Admittedly, sometimes I may not be. But, <laughs> I, but at least I, you make them feel good. I make them feel good. <laughs> I think a lot of people do that, and people who do that to me as well. I, I like to hang around with more and more. Mm-hmm. But it's never about. It, there's also a rule, you know, when I taught and students would ask me for advice. You know, about making paintings, I would always say, like I said earlier, strike the eye, seduce the mind. Like I said, don't burn bridges, be nice, and be prepared. Mm -hmm. But there's also, uh, you know, you look at the art world like a sandbox, like a really big sandbox. There's room for all of us to play in it. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're not all going to build the same things in that sandbox. If we all strive to build a castle, we're not not all going to build that castle bigger than the other. It's just, like, uh, all I say is... Know your limitations and then know how best to exceed them. Mm. Some people just have too big of an ego. Mm. And I think the best egos are the healthiest egos, not the biggest egos. The ones where they keep their self, themselves in check. You feed them and you feed them properly. You never let somebody know that you want something from them. Mm-hmm. You never go into a relationship wanting something from another person. Mm. Mm. You should go into a relationship knowing that you are good for each other. To build mm-hmm. off of one another. Right. Even mm. in the art, even in business. And these are the most successful. Well, I think that speaks to like something that I I find a really lovely trend in people in artists that I've met lately is this sense of gratitude. Well, this all happens this, at art fairs, is what I'm saying. I mean yeah. you go to art fairs and there's a really good sense of community. Mm-hmm. You're not gonna know everyone. But if you can talk to people, if you are approachable, which yeah. I believe Marshall's indicating or Intoning that I that I am. I mean, mm-hmm. I think you I are am, but, definitely. But then you know, people gravitate towards you, and if you play nice and you play in the sandbox and you share your your toys, I mean, you know, looking back in an infantile way of expressing it, people relate. Yeah, it's not that difficult. So all I'm saying, in essence, is really, it's much more challenging and effective to be positive about an art fair. Sure. But it's easy. I know there are artists. I know it's easy. I used to be one where I walked through feeling jealousy, feeling a little bit of inner rage, like, why aren't I part of this? Or how do I become part of this? Why, damn it, why aren't I getting my, my chances? Or, hmm. you know, but that's a really bad perspective of things. I wouldn't say that's what my perception was. It was more... I think I just was overwhelmed by the commerciality of it, but that's a necessary evil in art. Yeah, you mentioned that too, and there is a commercial component to art. Let's face it, I mean, it's it's a product meant to be sold. What what did Warhol say? Art is something you make and you you charge money for it, right? Yeah. Right. Something like that, right? I mean, of course, that's a no-brainer. I mean, there was a dude who just spoke a few words, but in his minimal rationale, it's a very big return in terms of understanding. Uh huh. So true. you know, it's true. I make things, and I don't want to keep them. I don't want to live with them. Right. I want to sell them. Right. I think that's a commercial component. 
Back to that idea you mentioned. And um, I love that people photograph their, themselves in front of my paintings, by the way. I love that. Okay. Oh, you love, in fact, yeah. the next painting I'm making is, is, is being designed, composed for photographs. Okay. Huh. Nice. Yeah, stay tuned. Instagram ready. I can't wait to it's see It's going to be Instagram ready. <laughs> yeah. Dude, I love that. That's the next well, movement. Well, you're giving the viewer agency. I, it's even better, Sid. But I did have a, a question about, you had mentioned pop music. There's a formula to it. Do you think there, and not in a reductive way at all, but do you think there's a formula to your paintings? And if so, could you let us in on that formula? I don't know what you mean, a formula. Like I know there's a like, formula when a producer sits down with a pop star like Rihanna or, or uh, Beyonce. They, they, there's a certain way, you know, even with the... It hits certain, certain emotional points and certain even, even notes at certain times. Pop music is a genre. It doesn't exist. You can't make a catchy song outside of a pop music formula. You know what I'm saying? Like... Three minutes, we do this at minute two and a half, we do this at minute. You know, do you feel like your art has any sort of, you're looking to hit emotional points or using twisting on elements, you know, uh, riffing on art history? Is there any sort of package you could talk about? I do all that, but I've never thought of it as a package. Hell, if there was a package, man, it'd make my life a lot easier. Yeah, right. <laughs> like right. if I really, if there really was something formulaic to what I'm doing other than technique, because mm-hmm. I, you know, you have to mix the right colors and apply it with the right pressure, like that's pretty formulaic too. But right. that's not what we're talking about. But no, I don't know. I mean, I mean, is a successful painting one that has a, a long-haired female with flowers? I don't know. I don't think so. Not that I, I'm unaware of that. Right, right, right. If you right. figure it out, man, let me know. Cause <laughs> no, that's why I was asking you. I might, you know. <laughs> we, no, we I don't know. Just, I never thought... For, we want you to make a package for us and sell it to us. <laughs> yeah, I think I need a producer then. And <laughs> I get to that point. You need Diplo to make Like, it. I would love to have someone in my studio. Like, I would... You know what would be really cool if someone... If I just... I could ask this maybe on Facebook. I don't know. I haven't been doing much more... Much on Facebook. It's been mostly on Instagram. Maybe I'll do it on Insta. But I'll ask, what do you want to see me paint next? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And I'll get... I'll tag all those results into a pool and I'll look at the majority of answers and I'll combine it with the, the next majority of, you know, I'll, well, I'll, what do they say about like the uh, primary response would probably be, Oh, I love those epic florals. Another one was like, Oh man, those girls with the long hair, with the flowers on their face, tat, you know, t- uh-huh. floral tattoos with school. Nah, dude, I love the guns, you know, wh- whatever. Mm-hmm. There's, yeah. I mean, you're going to get a mixed bag. What do they right. say about a, a horse, uh, a camel's a horse designed by committee? You know, have you ever heard that? <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Is that really how it goes? A, horse, yeah, that's... a camel is a horse designed by committee? Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard that, but that's, that's kind of brilliant. Yeah, yeah you, get, you get humps in weird places and all kinds oh. of shit when you design something from a committee. <laughs> wow, he comes up with some wild shit. Man. Yeah, we so... just are always waiting to see what comes up. All right, next. that's uh... good. I've never heard that, no. <laughs> oh, man, that's hilarious. So, oh, you're not all Puma. You got Converse and then Puma. Yeah, you were all Puma <laughs> guy. Yeah, you're getting visual now. Man. You're letting people See, it's know all that wearing. observation and analyzation. I got Converse, now, Levi's, Champion, and Puma. <laughs> and my Bruins watch. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, so tell me how, because um, you said that you were doing really well with the fairs. How, what was your role in the fair this year? So I was invited to be a... Uh, an artist for the VIP uh, Armory Studio tour. Uh-huh. 
Okay. And uh, that was a killer event. That was a lot of fun. They advertised it, and then, uh, you know, there was an RSVP, of course, naturally, and I was notified like 20 hours later that it was closed. And I'm thinking, who are these people? Mm. Who's going to come out to Dumbo? Clearly, people showed up. But, I don't know. I uh, came out to Dumbo. I left doing, was, yeah, seeing that's your true. work in your studio. Yeah, that's yeah. happening again on August, I mean, on April 28th and 29th. Okay, no Dumbo Studios. So, um, and I'll be uh, participating. So, it was great. It was a great event. I met trustees from museums who are interested in purchasing pieces. Wonderful. I have uh, I had visitors from uh, from up and down Manhattan, some from New Jersey, and people interested in art and working with uh, art advisors to pr- to make purchases. Mm. Uh, I had a few galleries show up. Great. Cool. To talk, uh, it was all pretty cool. And then uh, we had another event at the Armory itself. That VIP studio tour was in my Dumbo studio, but at the Armory in the publications lounge, uh, the good folks at Art in America and Art News, you know, under Peter Brandt, it's the same publishing house. They had asked me if I would do uh, a sip and sketch, Hmm. which was a term we both invented for uh, a time where people would come and visit with Mark Dennis, have a conversation with me, but I would be sketching, sort of live action sketching, whatever I want. I would bring my sketchbook and then I would sell the pages out of my sketchbook and they would also release a print series that they created hmm. of just details of my paintings huh. so they were really beautifully pr- full color prints of 12 and I think uh, you know there were prices attributed to everything but it was very minimal like 10 bucks a pop or something and I don't remember hmm. but the sketches I think went for 100 hmm. and Wow! people were buying the sketches people huh. really liked my sketches so these are full-page sketchbooks filled with stuff. There might be a flower on one thing, the back of a head on another, a, a tattoo idea. Did you, did you just write in um, any, like, back of someone's head? That, you know, <laughs> did I like ta- you were saying. You mean some real person? No, uh, you compose images by just words sometimes, you know? Oh, no, I didn't. Well, that existed if the pages were, if it was already on it. If it was already But on when it. I brought the book to the affair, to the event, and then I was adding to some of the pages, that might have been already might have been on there. There was something I'd written in Spanish that was on one of the sketches. Wow, that's cool. So yeah, so we created this whole new thing called Sip and Sketch, and I believe now we're gonna we're gonna promote it to other fairs and we're gonna continue it. That's because awesome. it, was a, it was a big that's success. Really cool. I uh, give props to uh, for them for coming up with this idea. It's mm. brilliant. I think it's great that they invited people to your studio too, because that to me. Is the golden moment where you understand or feel, you almost feel part of what the artist's process is. And you do such a good job when you have an open studio of revealing that process Mm. um, without over-revealing all your secrets. I mean, I love seeing the sketches on the walls, the the paint swatches on the walls as well. And it becomes part of the piece in a way. And I love seeing it in that setting. Um, yeah, I guess that's what I, I just, I'm so excited about seeing that an ongoing process of yours. And when I was visiting your studio, you, I think you had just done something on the West Coast and you were, I think marijuana ended up being one of the plants in one of your Oh yeah, that's true. So I was working on this sort of, uh, as people refer to them, epic florals and was missing something. 
It was based actually on a painting by de Kooning, the composition of uh, the woman, Woman One, I think it's called. Where the, At MoMA? Yeah. Yeah. And my painting of flowers was based on this composition, on his overall design, how I perceived it, how I broke it down, sort of deconstructed a de Kooning. And mm. it was missing something. And I overheard someone say, oh, yeah, green is a really hard color to handle. Nice. And oddly, I never use green. I, uh. I have very few paintings with green. And I thought, green's hard to handle. i got to check this out. Huh. What do I know that's green? Pot. <laughs> <laughs> Marijuana. Right? Trees, granted, but I don't, my, it doesn't need, didn't call for a landscape. It, I needed a plant. Yeah. Because it yeah. was a floral painting. And I thought, mm-hmm. how cool would it do to be a contemporary still life? Like, I can make this painting so much more fresh by adding, you know, a Snoop Dogg element. So <laughs> I started painting these leaves, leaves from the sativa plant which I learned had seven as opposed to the other plant, which has indica, which has five. So, Sativa plant, plants in there. Yeah, yeah, green was great. It was a lot of fun. I used sap green, phthalo green, phthalo lime green, phthalo avocado green, <laughs> avocado grass green, sativa green. I mean, there were so many greens out there. Who the hell knew? They gambling and Holbein make all these paints. So I just had fun with it, and I realized, oh, my God, it's so much fun. I'm going to paint more. Get a big bushy plant going, and uh, as soon as it was dry, it sold immediately. Oh, huh. That's amazing! Nice. Wow. Yeah. So People it's love like, the green. You know, so there's a so you know that's part of the question we asked about the formula. Like, if green, if, if pot, <laughs> yeah, green, green, yeah, if green, green might sell, pot might sell. I don't know. Green at the very top of painting. Like I don't know, but but I should take note. Like, it would be an interesting thing if people took note because there was a, a group of artists, right? Melamid and Komar. Uh-huh. Back sure. in the day, that put together the idea of the perfect American painting, and it had to have, uh, a, right. and it had to have a landscape, a yes. president, yep. and a deer, and a creek in it, something like that. Uh, oh, like a country right. song, like yeah. it has yeah. to have a yeah, it had yeah, yeah. Dennis Mama. Dutton had that in his uh, TED Talk. There you go. Beauty. Yeah. There you go. Was, so your version of it would be, um, well, obviously green, and then, <laughs> I don't know, what else? <laughs> Just a tattoo. <laughs> how do you, in your own words, how do you see yourself fitting into the contemporary art market? Like, how, what, what would you label yourself as? What would you say your role is? Because you're, you're, from my vantage point, you're, you're very successful. You make really interesting paintings. And I just want to know, in your own words, how you fit in. Well, I think, I'd, I think that's best to leave to others. Yeah, who are kind of writing about art or categorizing artists. I, you know, I make paintings. You just put it out and then whatever. I put it out and I believe in what I do. I have confidence. I have faith. I have hope. But I also am very, very well aware that I can't please everyone all the time. Mm-hmm. But there's somebody up there that likes me. So, mm. hope, you know, so with that, I think my works get into the right stream of consciousness of buyers or potential collectors and museums and galleries and I think uh, I'm embarking on a new chapter of my life to be honest with you currently currently like as we speak huh what 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 does that mean what do you want to I think with gallery representation I think with the fact that uh, I'm pretty much selling a painting at least once a month Uh how do you keep up with that rate of production well I work hard I have paintings that are in stock that, that um, I have assistants okay. that I um, 
that I have in storage, paintings I have in storage that people that people are interested in. I ripped up a painting recently. I tore it up, and on Instagram, you'll notice the post of it being on the floor, cut up, and oh. everybody's writing to me. Oh my God, save me a piece, save me a piece. Like all these strangers, and I right. promised them I would, and I am. I did. I saved thirty little pieces of that painting because oh, they were all flowers. So I cut all the flowers out with a exacto oh. knife. That's cool. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So. Um, Out of that painting, I made three little ones. Okay. So you know, I got three little paintings out of a mistake. But uh, so you say, and you said you work with assistants. Yeah, as you know. Do you like that? Do you um, like that relationship? I have to like the assistants. I don't. It's Uh not to me. It's not a business. It's a friendship. It's a relationship. It has Mm. to be. It has to be a trusting, uh, organized, and well-run machine. I mean, I Mm. you know look at what I'm doing now as a job. You know, I have I have mortgage i have two cars i mean i have a big studio mm-hmm. i i get it together when i go in it's no more exploring is on sketching mm. and my preliminary drawings and thinking i think a lot outside i mean i think 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 all the time mm. and within that i explore and i experiment i don't experiment and explore anymore when it comes down to painting okay. that's pretty formulaic and mm. exactly what kind of palette i need to mix and the people i hire should be of the same like-mindedness. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a symbiotic They should be as good or as better than me, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of better painters than me, technically at least. Mm. I'd like to think my ideas well, are pretty cool. That's very humble of you to say. Well, I think there are. Mm. Mm. I think what I do is, it's like a craft, you know? It's just that the concepts with that craft create the Mark Dennis painting. That's what, um, that's what Dutton was saying in his... Uh, in his TED talk was that the desire for beauty is the desire for um, for something that's highly skilled. And I think that that's really interesting. Like in, in today's art world that that your work is really rising to the top, that people are uh, once again looking for this very highly skilled craftsmanship and I think that that's that's a really interesting thing that's happening people say that to me people bring that to my attention when they look at my works wow you can really paint wow wait a minute this is a cool idea Hmm. and then they begin to unravel the layers like a tangerine you know the onion metaphor is horrible because no one likes to peel back onions. <laughs> I don't like, yeah. Because yeah. first of all, the, 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 the outside layer falls apart in your hands. It's flaky, and then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, why are my eyes? But then you can't cut it. A tangerine, however, that, that's, a, that's sexy from the start. Looking at it, holding it, and then you peel back the skin, and you like stick your fingers right down the center, and you break it apart. That's layers, and you start pulling out the little threads. That's more like my painting. And it tastes better than an onion. And it does yeah. taste better. And in the end, you want more. <laughs> so... I had someone... There are layers to my work. I forget what book this was that I read, but it was talking about content and form, form being technique. Form, And he was saying form is just there to illuminate the content. Do you feel like you put form or content first? Do you feel like your paintings are idea paintings where the technique is just sort of shining a light on your ideas? Or do you think people see the technique first? I really don't know what people see first. I would imagine, in, for me, I see technique first. You see technique first? Uh, you know, not in my own work, but when I look at other works. Okay. So if I'm looking at, say, I mean, you could go from any... You know, 
like a, a Robert Longo in Metro Pictures, right? The last, uh-huh. the last show. Like, I didn't look into the Syrian refugees uh-huh. in that in that in that triptych. I think it was yeah. a triptych or a diptych. But I didn't. I saw charcoal. Mm-hmm. I saw dark. I saw light. I saw composition. I saw movement. I felt an emotion for it. Uh huh. And then I realized, wow, you know, there's these people in a boat. They're on the water. So I'm really a formalist at heart. Mm-hmm. Design matters to me mm-hmm. greatly. Composition really matters to me. Yeah, that's very clear. And then I begin to realize, wow, they're refugees. Okay, they're Syrian. And then it goes on, and then it goes deeper and deeper. And then, you know, I'm at the, I'm done with the tangerine. Uh Uh-huh. And then do I want more? In the end, yeah, pretty much. Or or it's an onion. Right. But his work, to me, is a tangerine. Yeah. There's many artists like that. I mean, you know, there's a lot of younger artists. There's a lot of older artists. I mean, I, I still go into the museums and look at a Caravaggio. And to me, it's like you can't get as many tangerines as you need as... As metaphors, the way is, I feel about his paintings. Everything is he your is, guy? Out of, I think the greatest painter that ever lived is Titian. Okay. I think Velázquez is second. I think Caravaggio is the guy. However, I'd want to have a. I want to. I want to have a drink with. It'd be a fun hang. You know, I want to <laughs> see someone walk up to my table and say, "Hey, Kike and, <laughs> and Guinea to us." You know. Yeah, Caravaggio. Well, look at that! A fucking Jew and Italian sitting together. <laughs> I look at him and I say, "Okay, Mikey, <laughs> let's go." Have you read that book, uh, The Sacred and the Profane, about Caravaggio's life? No. It's really interesting. That's a damn good painting by Titian. Oh, it is. Sacred and the Profane. Really good painting. look into that one. Caravaggio died at 33. Was that right? No, he's probably 37. I don't remember. 37 or 39. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I like how you were describing the tangerine versus the onion, because you're talking about the sexiness of art, and like, I feel like there is a layer of seduction in art and definitely a layer of seduction in, in your work. And um, Alexander Baumgarten, who started um, the philosophy of aesthetics, he was saying that the purpose of beauty is to arouse desire. And it feels like... Like in an evolutionary sense, I would imagine. Both, yeah, yeah. To, well, make you, yeah. to make you want it and to make you want more. Well, if you go back, if you just took, we're all animals, but if you just took the non-human animal species of the world, it's the male that is usually the most beautiful in terms of desire because he has to make the female want him in order to copulate or to mate. So spiders are a great example. Birds are the best example. Uh The the cardinal, first and foremost. Yeah. Only males are red. Uh-huh. They're red because they have to be seen, they have to be vivid, they have to be beautiful for the female to take notice. Because mm-hmm. a female takes on more risk than a male does. Absolutely. Yeah. Because she wants, she's the one that's going to perpetuate the species. She wants the strongest, most effective sperm that it's she Dawkins. can get. Yeah. What? It's like Richard Dawkins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody wants Dawkins sperm. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I don't want Dawkins sperm. That's okay. So, you know, the male has to be the more beautiful, and with that comes desire. So, really, in an evolutionary sense, and what I think Marsha was was hinting at, that Mm -hmm. this makes perfect sense. Right. Yeah. And I can't say much more than that, but I always know that when someone asks me, how do I know when I'm done with a painting, I say when I want it. Huh. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. 
So you just listen to yourself. Yeah. I'm getting that. That's a theme running through this whole thing. You really trust yourself and you listen to yourself. Wasn't always the case, but I've had enough life lessons to, uh, to know that my gut, maybe not my bacteria in my gut, <laughs> but my gut in an intuitive sense is, I, yeah, I'm pretty confident in it. When, when, how, when did you become comfortable trusting that? Do you know or how long did it take? Yesterday. Yeah? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it seems like yesterday, but it, it's been a very slow process of really gaining the amount of confidence I have today. Hmm. And there are times where it's shattered. There are days where I do not have a good day in the studio. There are days where I might argue with a friend or family member and, you know, and it shatters me. Hmm. I'm actually, you know, this crazy dragon slayer. I will defend my family and my friends at all costs. Like I have the word dragon slayer tattooed in my arm. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Huh. I and, thought he was making it up. You're not making it up. And, um, oh, for real? Nice. It is there. And I will uh, you know, fight to the bitter end for my rights. So what, what fight you... against hatred and racism and intolerance and anti-Semitism. Fuck that. Don't mess with people. Leave them alone. If they're not hurting anybody, shut up. But somewhere within that, there's a vulnerable, fragile man mm-hmm. that I protect Always the yin and yang. Wickedly. Yeah, and I said that earlier, right? Like, I don't know if it's yin and yang, so I don't understand that too much, but I guess I do without knowing. But it's about the polarities. It's about the extreme nature of being a human. I feel very deeply that I am definitely fragile on one level, but wicked, wicked strong on another. Hmm. Well, your work definitely is very strong. And I love... Thank you. ...that there is a... There is a fragility in it, the way you're representing your flowers, this whole idea that some of them are, I mean, obviously... Well, they're wilting, they're dying, you know, it's all about the memento mori. But let me say one thing about the idea of fragility, which was interesting to me, because it's something I never thought about. But a person, a man, a couple, they were probably in their late 60s, came into my studio recently during the Armory VIP studio tour. So, you know, I listened to people during that tour. It wasn't mm-hmm. everybody who comes to my studio, but this was a very, uh, very important uh, studio visit. And he said, you know, I, I want to tell you something that I'm noticing about your works. There's an incredible vulnerability with exposing mm. all these necks mm. to the viewer's perception. It's like where you can feel the pulse. I said, yeah. He says, yeah, you know, we could kiss the necks, we could touch the necks, and we could slash them. Wow. Yeah, wow. And I just said, okay. I looked around for my exacto knives. But <laughs> because on two levels, it could be in real life, he has his perception or he wants to slash a painting. It's like he just, like, I love the fact, however, and I've come to learn this, and this is what's built up my confidence as well as made me remain fragile, which makes me truly human. I think we should all embrace our fragilities and our vulnerabilities and, as well as our strengths. But I thought, wow, you know, the perceptions are so varied, yet I'm painting such the simplest of images sometimes. The back of a head with a tattoo with a really wicked, intense hairstyle, but yet there are so many ways of perceiving that, mm-hmm. which I was unaware of because I can't possibly imagine what everyone's going to think at any given time looking at any of my paintings. Like, y'all can't think. Anybody, no one can think. No one. Unless you're omniscient, you know. Yeah. The, <laughs> thank God that's not going to happen. But you keep, you keep like an open heart to feedback. You really listen and you, you appreciate those insights. 
And I've changed paintings based on feedback. Oh, really? I don't think I've told the person maybe once in a while. But yeah, people have said things and it, it ruminates. I love that word, right? So I ruminate on things, you know. Mm-hmm. Like I'm just that water buffalo on the savannah. <laughs> chewing and chewing on my ideas and conversations. And then I realize, you know, rather than unloading a big poop after all that, I'm going to go repaint something. Because, huh. you know, water buffalo take big poops. <laughs> wow. That was the metaphor, but it didn't have to go that way. Okay. <laughs> Maybe we'll just cut that part out. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> well, thank you so much for well, coming to we're going to end on that our... note. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not the poop part, but the vulnerability. That's yeah. what I was coming back to. Keep it to. real. I was yeah. coming back to the fact that you, you've come here to our podcast. You made revealed parts of your life that are very personal and... We really appreciate that you have shown your vulnerable side, but also your strong side where you're willing to stand up for what you believe in, and especially your art. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. This is Thank really you great. Hey! All right, so uh, we have a, a couple of questions from our listeners, Mark. So at JP Vogel wanted to know, which actually goes back to what you were saying. You said someone up there is looking out for you. And he had two questions. One was, do you believe in an afterlife? Most definitely. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, just very succinctly stated yes. And I said that somebody up there likes me. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, I, what did I say? You said the same thing, but just different. You just worded it differently. Okay, someone up there likes you. Yeah, I just wanted to requote myself. But okay, yeah. afterlife involving like reincarnation or going to another place or matter. It doesn't matter. No, I will be matter. You'll be matter. Okay, I'll be molecules somewhere else. I'll be molecules distributed. Who knows where? It's not my choice. Like you can't get rid of matter on this earth that right read okay right or back into space yeah right wherever i definitely have that do you think it'll be a happy place yeah if i believe that i choose i mean we we don't things are not just we just don't believe in things we choose to believe in things Uh uh-huh that's how i've always looked at life you choose to believe right i mean what it makes us human we have we have choices so I choose to believe in an afterlife. I don't care if it's real or not to anyone else. I choose to believe in it. Like, I mean, like anything. Huh, that's freeing. I, I remember a car ride I went on with one of my friend's grandpas one time. I was probably 15 years old, and this stuck with me. Because he's like, you don't get to choose what you believe. And that was haunting to me. Right, that's haunting. As, I agree, that's haunting. Because yeah. you're told that there's a finite understanding of the universe uh-huh. and of faith, of, faith, of any kind of belief system. Uh-huh. But I think we choose to believe something. Huh. I choose not to believe in God as it has been defined through the centuries. Hmm. I choose to believe that there is an afterlife. Mm-hmm. Listen, you know, it all comes down to one thing, the imagination. Mm-hmm. The imagination is really the only thing we've got that is individual to us. Mm-hmm. No one can take our thoughts away. But they can take your belief system away. They can force you to believe in certain things. And you put your thoughts on canvas to some of, share Some that. of them. 
Yeah, okay. Some of them, yeah. I also write a lot. Okay. It's mostly uh, storytelling. Like, like literal storytelling. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know, some people could call it a, uh, what's that when you put together your life stories? What do they call that? Memoirs. Yeah, memoir. <laughs> Marky's memoirs, I guess, <laughs> unknowingly, because who am I to write my memoirs? But they're like, it's almost like keeping a diary. Mm-hmm. So I got that. Well, artwork is like that too, right? I, mean, I think artwork reveals layers of your life uh, changes and well particularly your work I mean you're bringing your experiences into there's no doubt I paint from personal I paint about my reaction to personal experience Hmm. and you were talking about being limited by the this kind of finite idea of the afterlife your work also feels like it is doing a nod to the infinite that whole idea of the viewer looking at the viewer, looking at the painting, this looking back. It's like this endless Like loop. meta. It's, yeah, it's yeah I, I've been told my works are a meta-narrative of some yeah. sorts. Even uh, Velasquez with your attraction to that. Correct, is. and I think that's where it really started. The meta-narrative, I really think, starts with, for me at least, the Las Meninas. Well, for, when I say for me at least, meaning that's the first time I recognized that you could create a meta-narrative. Uh-huh. Velasquez did. Huh. I'm sure it exists in other paintings I'm just not aware of. I just think that's an interesting um, multiplicity in your work that you have this kind of um, this sense of humor in, in a lot of your work, and like it's almost like this jocular uh, vaudevillian kind of joke, and then like there's this deeper level to it too, where you're looking into the infinite. So I, I like again that there's that those polarities again happening. A student. Uh, years ago, eight or nine years ago, asked me, well, why don't you paint any more self-portraits? Because I told them that their assignments for that entire semester was to paint a self-portrait a week. Mm. No matter how they achieved it, no matter what medium they used, they had to look at themselves and paint what they saw. Mm. See how far they would take that and what direction they would take it. It's about exploring and experimenting, but also learning some certain techniques. And I said, hey, man, everything I do is a self-portrait. Mm-hmm. And right. I think just about what you said, you know, there's a jocularity, there's a so-called visual wink, there's a sense of humor, there's some tongue-in-cheek, there's a little brawn, there's a little brashness, there's a little, there's a little vulnerability going on. I mean, I think it encompasses and encapsulates a lot of my feelings and my personality, most of my works. Interesting. And I'm pretty aware of that when I make art. It might be the ones that I think are most successful, the ones that truly resonate or reflect my character. Yeah, they definitely hit a mark. Ha! Oh. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. All right. Well, thanks, Mark. Thanks Thanks for coming. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Also, thanks to Mark Dennis for those amazing stories. Uh, Ton, do we have any listener shout-outs? Yeah. uh, We got two more donors that I want to shout-out. Dina Brodsky. That's dinabrodsky.com. Thanks, Dina. Thank you, Dina. And you can find her on Instagram at Dina Brodsky. And also Brandy Craft. You can find her on our Instagram at Brandy underscore Craft. Thank you guys so much for supporting us. Totally appreciate it. Yeah, how can people donate, Ton? 
they could find the donate button at the end of uh, each episode on our website at artgrindpodcast.com. Okay, before we go, I wanted to plug Mark's uh, Instagram account. He is at darkmenace, at D-A-R-C-M-E-N-N-I-S, and his website is markdennis.com. Also, follow us on Instagram at artgrindpodcast. You can like us on Facebook at Art Grind Podcast. And, um, oh, and visit the website. There you can leave questions and comments, find uh, show notes, do donations. Yeah, um, so I meant to say at the bottom of the page. At the bottom of the page. Yeah. For the, the donations. Yeah. Exactly. Got it. Thanks for listening, guys. See you later. Stay on the grind while we feed your mind.